uh, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah today. We're going to pause from our study in 1 Samuel and look at Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2 to equip us and prepare us for next week. The purpose of this message is to give us a heart and vision for this outreach next weekend, as well as encourage us in outreach every day of our lives. So let's pray together and ask that God would bless the time in in the word. Father, as we come before you, we recognize that you love us, that you've created us, you've given us your son to die upon the cross and rise again. You know us, you know what we're thinking, what we're going through, and we ask that you would really move through this time in your word. God, that we would be burdened with the things that are upon your heart. Would you bless our time together in Jesus' name, amen. I've entitled this morning's message, The Burden, because we're going to look at Nehemiah, a cupbearer, who experienced the call of God upon his life. He began to care about the things that God cared about. He received God's burden. And I would hope this morning that we would be reminded and reunited and maybe receive for the first time this burden of the things that are upon God's heart. A little bit of the context of the book of Nehemiah is the children of Israel have been taken captive out of the promised land into the Persian Empire. At this time, they're underneath the thumb of the Persian Empire. God prophesied that this would happen because of their rebellion, because of their idolatry. There's been two groups that have been able to go back to the promised land. One is Ezra, who has rebuilt the temple, but there's no walls around the temple. The temple is very vulnerable. So Nehemiah is in captivity in Sushan, in the capital of the Persian Empire, but his heart is back in Jerusalem. What's so amazing about this story is you have a cupbearer who God raises up to be the leader to transform a nation. And that's the message that I want us to get is no matter where we're at in life, if we'll surrender ourselves to the Lord, that God can use us to be a wall builder. To, to use us to repair those places that have been broken down. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Sushan, the citadel. Keep that in mind this month, Chislev. It's November, December. It's going to come into play into chapter 2. But it gives us a specific time. He's at Sushan, which is the capital city of the Persian Empire, in the capital building, if you would, in the citadel. That Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity concerning Jerusalem. Nehemiah says, how are those guys doing that have gotten away from the Persian Empire that are now back in Jerusalem? What's the status? And they said to me, The surveyors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. This morning we're going to have six points to consider if you're taking notes. And the first is this, pain. This is where Nehemiah's journey begins, is pain. Great distress, great reproach, the walls are broken down, And instead of just hearing this news that goes in one ear and out another, it impacts his heart, it impacts his life. He's moved to a place of prayer. So would you consider for just a moment, where is the distress and where is the reproach in your life? Let's look in our lives first. 
before we look anywhere else? Where have the walls been broken down? It's a real picture of the life of a believer. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit, but there's no walls that have been placed around us. There's no security. There's no protection. And what would God want to rebuild? A lot of times these walls are broken down in our lives for the same reason as the children of Israel, because of compromise, because of sin. And God wants to do a work. He wants to do that rebuilding work. Where are the walls broken down in this church, Rocky Mountain Calvary? Where is their reproach and distress as us as a group of people? Where is maybe there's some needs that are happening amongst one another that aren't being met, that aren't being cared for, that aren't being loved? We, we want to look at that pain. We want to feel that pain. We want to respond to that pain a little bit. How about in our community, Colorado Springs? Read an article recently that said Colorado Springs is in one of the top 10 cities to live in in the United States. Can anybody really deny that? It's a beautiful place to live. It's a wonderful place to live. Maybe someone that's casually cruising through without taking a close look would think that there's not a lot of distress and a lot of pain in our city. But that's not true, is it? I checked the news yesterday, just out of curiosity, our local Colorado Springs news. Maybe you caught this story. A 20-year-old man was playing video games And his girlfriend's son comes in, a toddler, two years old, and is interrupting his video games. So he punches this two-year-old in the face with brass knuckles, and the two-year-old's killed. Now he's facing charges for the murder of this toddler, this two-year-old, over a video game. Brass knuckles, punching a toddler to the point of death over a video game. That's our community. If you live here, If you get off the beaten path, if you take a moment to look, there's so much pain. There's so much distress. And we start to look at it through the spiritual lens, through the spiritual eyes. There's so many people inside of this city that have no clue who Jesus is and have no understanding of how much God loves them. What's the greatest need in our community? It's for people to have the knowledge that the Father loves them. That's what people are longing for. That's what people are looking for. That's what is going to bring them to the point of salvation is to realize that God loves them. If someone's struggling with drugs and, and alcohol, what is it that they really need? They need Christ. To know that Christ loves them, that Christ died for them. We're not talking about just some common currency of gold or silver or the U.S. dollar. But we're talking about the blood of Jesus. You're valued so much that Jesus died for you. How about someone that's just caught up in destructive relationships? They just give themselves away over and over again sexually, looking for that fulfillment. What is it that they really need to know that the love that they're longing for is found in the arms of the Father? Someone that's highly successful, but extremely insecure. What do they need to know? You're created by God. God loves you. You need to come into a living relationship with the Lord. Someone that's in love with money, It's just about stuff, more stuff, more money. What is it that they need to know? The message that God has given to us. But this is my concern in my own life. I think it's so easy to fall into this place where the pain doesn't register. You can also easily live here and not register with any of the pain that's happening right here in front of our very eyes. A few weeks ago, just before I left for vacation, A man came up to me right over here with a big smile, looked me right in the eyes, and he said, you don't recognize me, do you? 
I said, no, I don't. He said, back here at this back parking lot, about four or five months ago, I was out here with a sign asking, asking for money. And I decided to come to church. And ever since I started coming to church, my life has been transformed and changed. I got a job. I've been reunited with my kids. So I'm blown away with, with, with the love of God. How many times do we drive out of this very parking lot and not even realize the need that's in this parking lot? It's like right outside Right in here is we're worshiping the Lord. It's right there. Somebody's walking by and they're in pain and they're distressed. But I'm, I'm busy. I got my thing going. And so I leave, we're done, we keep going. But there's so much that's happening all around us. There's so much happening in your neighborhood. There's so much happening in your workplace. There's so much happening even in our own lives. As I was thinking and praying about this message, I really felt God's heart that where he wants to begin this work is in us. That if we want to go out and be a wall builder in other people's lives, that God wants to do a restorative work in our own lives. And maybe you say, you know, I'm God's child. I'm God's son. I'm God's daughter. But I have blown my life apart. I've done things that I have never should have done. Could God love me? Could he forgive me? Could he restore? Absolutely. He wants to start this morning with rebuilding the walls around your life. Then you can go out to others and say, you know what, this is what God has done and is doing in my life, but we have to spend some time registering with the pain, allowing it to impact us. And that's what it begins with Nehemiah. What does he do in verse two? Or excuse me, verse four. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Prayer. Goes from pain to prayer. Point number two, prayer. Really? Prayer? That's what he did with the pain? That's what he did with the reproach and the distress? He prayed. This shows that Nehemiah has an accurate view of God and an accurate understanding of prayer. A lot of times we don't. When we see pain and destruction and reproach, I gotta, I gotta do something. I gotta come up with a strategy. I gotta come up with a plan. Nehemiah understands that this problem is much bigger than anything that he could fix. I think that if I would have given this message three or four years ago, we wouldn't have registered with it to the same way that we do now. We understand that in our country and in our culture right now, there's deep distress and there's deep reproach. You have to be either half asleep spiritually or completely calloused to not understand that there is great distress and there's great reproach. The question is, what do we do? And it's prayer. And do you believe that prayer is the most important thing that we could do? It's not our last option, but it's our first resort. I got to confess to you that I don't pray near as much as I should about the pain that's happening all around us. Nehemiah gets it right. He's not just moved emotionally. It's important to be impacted emotionally, but then he moves to action and he prays before the God of heaven. He fasts. He gives up food to pray, to ask that God would work. In those points of pain that the Holy Spirit's revealing, go to the Lord in prayer. Cry out to him. Ask that God would move. Be desperate before God. God, this is what's going on in my marriage. This is what's going on with my children. God, I'm single, and this is what's going on in, in my life. God, this is what's going on in, in the church. This is what's going on in the community, and to lift it up to the Lord in prayer. Nehemiah doesn't even call a prayer meeting. 
He believes that God hears him individually. Is there anything wrong with a prayer meeting? Absolutely not. But sometimes I think, we think that the only way God will hear us is if we have a thousand people praying. And we go, oh, that's a move of God. We had a big rally. And I wonder sometimes if God's saying, you know what, I would rather have one person that's really broken. And the scriptures are chock full of individuals that God used when they got to the place of personal convicted prayer before the Lord. God hears the prayer of a cupbearer. And that's where this movement begins. Let's look at his prayer. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Nehemiah begins with the attributes of God. So important in prayer. This is not too difficult for the Lord. You're the God of heaven. You're great and you're awesome. You keep your word. You keep your covenant with those who love you. Verse six, it moves to desperation. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants. You ever feel that way? God, please, we're broken. Please hear. I know you hear, but please be attentive. Desperation leads to confession. And confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinance which you commanded your servant Moses. In order for God to rebuild the broken places of our lives and of our community, it has to come through repentance and confession. What is it that in our lives we need to own before God this morning? What does confession mean? It means to agree with God. God, I agree with you that lying breaks your heart. It hurts people that you love and I love. Forgive me for lying. God, I can't pretend that sexual sin's okay. I know sexual sin is gonna break down the walls of my life. It's gonna affect this temple that you've made me to be. I agree with you, God. This is wrong. And to be broken over before it. God, you, you tell us in your word to be angry and sin not. I'm really good at the first part of being angry, but I'm also really good at sinning in my anger. God, I've got to own that this morning. That's on me. That's not on you. A lot of times we get all upset at God. Why are the walls broken down? God's saying, well, it's pretty clear. There's some things you've got to look at in your life. And Nehemiah gets to that place. Not only owning his own sin, but the sin of his people, acknowledging it before the Lord, confessing it to the Lord, he also remembers God's promise. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commands and do them, though some of you are cast off to the farthest parts of heaven, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. God warned them through Moses saying, if you walk in rebellion and idolatry, if you reject me, you're gonna be scattered. It's God's loving hand of discipline. But if you return to me, I'll bring you back to the land. So Nehemiah is saying, God, I'm taking you up on your promise. Could God restore your life if you return to him? Absolutely. Absolutely he can. 
What's God's promise to us? If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The book of Acts tells us that the time of refreshment comes at repentance. When we repent, we turn away from sin, we turn to the Lord, God refreshes, he he rebuilds, he longs to, to be gracious. Nehemiah understands this about the character of God. Now these are your servants, your people, whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. God, we're your special people. Oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. What does Nehemiah begin to see in this prayer is, God, you can use me. God, you have put me in a strategic position because I'm the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah wasn't a priest. He didn't have theological training. He's a normal, average person, slave to the Persian Empire, doing his job. He was given an incredible position of trust as the cupbearer. He would taste the beverages first to make sure no one was trying to poison the king. He had a relationship with the king. I want you to hear this this morning. Is how come not everybody works at a church? Because there would be no effective, ongoing, life-giving witness of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Where do you spend the bulk of your time, fortunately or unfortunately, where you work? Monday morning's gonna happen. You're gonna head there. You know, junior high students, high school students, I hear school's starting. Is that true? That's your job right now. You're, you're headed to work, right? And God wants to use us where he's placed us, in our families, in our neighborhoods, with our friends, and in our workplace. Nehemiah grasps this. That's your mission field, to live out the testimony of Jesus Christ right where you work. We want this passage to equip us and inspire us for next weekend, for Saturday and Sunday, to reach out with the love of Jesus Christ. But even more so, we're wanting this weekend to teach us and to remind us of the great commission that God has given to us, to go and make disciples, to tell people the love of Jesus Christ, to introduce them to Jesus Christ through, through the gospel. God doesn't just have us at our places of work and school just to make money. We're thankful for that provision, but there's a lot bigger mission that's going on in God's economy, and that's for people to know him and be saved for all of eternity. Amen? So God's going to use Nehemiah in this place of being a cupbearer. Let's go to chapter 2. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before me, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. The month of Nisan is March or April for us. Chislev was November, December. Nehemiah is praying fervently, passionately, consistently from November, December, all the way to March and April before doing anything. That's perseverance in prayer, isn't it? A lot of times these things don't happen overnight. The pain hits you. The burden hits you. God's calling me. I move to prayer. Move to a broken heart, crying out before the Lord, fasting and praying. In this process of prayer, then God shows us the steps of faith to take. It's really important to see how long he was praying. Notice what he does 
the end of verse one, now I'd never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, may the king live forever. Always a good thing to do in the king's presence. Hey, did I tell you today? You're the man. Just, just let's just get this clear. Even though I'm really bummed out right now in your presence, you are the man. May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tomb, lies in waste and its gates are burned with fire? Point number three, it's proposition. Proposition. Nehemiah takes the step of faith by being sad in the king's presence. Where did this idea come from? I think it came from the Lord through prayer. God put it on his heart. Okay, Nehemiah, it's, it's time for action. This is the action you need to do, is you need to show and reveal your sorrow before the king. I'm sure this wasn't the first time that Nehemiah felt this, but it's the first time that he allows his sorrow to be seen before the Lord. Why is he dreadfully afraid? King doesn't like people being sad in his presence. Off with his head. Here comes the next cupbearer. I'm not saying to be foolish or reckless when it comes to how you live out your faith at work and, and in your neighborhood and inside of relationships, but I am saying take those steps of faith that God has revealed to you through prayer. Well, my head might get cut off. I might lose my job. I may lose the relationship. And that's where the trust in the Lord takes place. Steps of faith are really important when it comes to walking with the Lord. God honors steps of faith as he's leading us. Church, it will be crickets. Absolutely crickets in our lives without steps of faith. We can easily go through our Christian life and we're comfortable with the fact that we're saved and we're thankful that we're saved, but we are not aware of so many people that are lost, that don't know Jesus Christ as their savior. And sometimes we pray things like, God, use me for your glory. I want to see you impact hearts and lives with your love. But if it's not accompanied with steps of faith, nothing's going to happen. What's the most dangerous thing that could happen to Rocky Mountain Calvary as we go forward in the future? That we don't take steps of faith. That we know God's truth, we know what it says, but we don't put it in action. Not foolish steps, but steps that come through prayer. Has God put a step of faith on your heart prior to coming to this service? Has he spoken things to me that I've just kind of put on the shelf and said, well, I'll wait for further information on that. I don't know about that. That, 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 that has risk with it. I might lose this. I might lose my life. I, different levels of risk. Without the risk, there won't be the reward of seeing God work and move. I don't want this to come across as condemnation or heavy-handed, like, oh man, you better serve the Lord, and if you don't serve the Lord, then there's something wrong with you, and sure glad that I went to church today. I got a good old-fashioned spanking from the pastor. <laughs> Woohoo! right? No, that's not the tone of what I want you to hear. I want you to hear this, is it's time to go base jumping for Jesus. God's got a great adventure. He's already working. He's already moving. He wants you to be part of what he's already doing. And as you take the steps of faith that he's putting on your heart in your life, it becomes really exciting. Is it easy? No. Is there sacrifice? Yes. Is there difficulty? Absolutely. Is there opposition? For sure. 
But is it a wonderful adventure of seeing God work? Yes, go for it. Nehemiah takes that plunge of faith. Verse four, then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Don't you love that? The king's like, well, what's on your heart? What's your request? He knows this is a big moment. We know that as well. The boss asks you, your spouse asks you, your kids ask you, friend asks you, your boyfriend or girlfriend asks you, here it is, it's a crossroads. Instead of Nehemiah just going, I got this, here it is, this is continual dependency upon the Lord. It's a flare prayer. Nehemiah doesn't get on his knees here. He doesn't go away and pray for an hour. It's that quick in his heart of saying, God, this is a big moment. Will you really help me to answer wisely? And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. What? He's a cupbearer. He knows how to bring good milk, good chocolate milk, good lemonade, good whatever, but rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? He's not in construction. He's not an architect, but he's saying, please send me back to Jerusalem to rebuild this city. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him. Can you picture it? It's it's an epic moment. How long will your journey be? And when we return, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. He gets to go. The king says, all right, Nehemiah, you can go rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And Nehemiah says, okay, I'll be back at this set time. Now, verses 7, going down through verse 8, bring us to the fourth point, and it's preparation. It's preparation. Nehemiah had a plan. He had thought this through. Okay, I'm the cupbearer. If I get an opportunity to put my request before the king, these are the things that we're going to need. And we should have a plan as well. Look at his plan. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let the letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. He knows he needs a visa. He knows he needs the proper paperwork. He can't even get to Jerusalem without this permit. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, for the house that I will occupy. This is bold. Hey, hey, king, get out your checkbook. Time to get out the Amex, the Visa card. I'm going to need a lot of timber. So why don't you, as you're writing letters, just go ahead and write one to Asaph as well because I have to have timber. Nehemiah had thought this through. He had a plan. He was prepared. He was ready. And the Lord granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Are you prepared for God to move? So here's the point of pain. Here's the distress. Here's what's really breaking your heart. Now you've been moved to a place of prayer. You're praying. You're asking that God would work. You took a step of faith that God has led, but did you believe that once the door opens, how are you going to respond? So let's say you've been praying for someone to get saved. They get saved. Do you know what you would do next? Do you have a plan of what you would tell them are the most important things to do now that they've received Christ 
as her savior. Maybe you've been praying for God to work in your marriage. There's some distress there. The walls are broken down. There's some hard hearts. And God moves. And your spouse comes to you and says, you know what? I really want to make this work. Do you have a plan? Do you have a few simple things of where to go from that point? Maybe there's a difficulty with one of your kids. It happens, doesn't it? You're praying for them, praying for a soft heart. And they come to you and say, Mom, Dad, I realize these choices that I've been making are destructive. Can you help me? What, what would you say? What would you do? What would you do if a coworker comes to you and says, I'm so depressed. You've been praying for them. I just feel like taking my life. I feel like ending it. In that moment, you're like, oh, call a pastor. Oh, you know, I hope they pick up, you know. No, they don't want to talk to a pastor. They don't know your pastors. They want to talk to you. You're involved in their life. Are you prepared to, to share with them? That's why it's important to have a plan. Even though we have a plan, we desperately need God's hand to be upon that plan. Nehemiah's got the plan, but it's God's hand. And that's what we need as a church. As we go out on Saturday as a church family, we need divine appointments that only God can line up. Remember last summer as we went out and did this project, real close to the church here, just on the other side of Austin Bluffs, there was a, a woman who had just lost her husband within the last six to eight weeks, and she needed help in her yard. She wasn't able to keep up on her yard since she lost her husband. She allows us to use her trimmer for the hedges. We didn't have a trimmer, so we were using the, the, the trimmer, and she begins to cry because her husband always kept the yard up, and he always was the one who trimmed the hedges. And she shares her story with us. A woman in our group from RMC had also lost her husband recently, and she was out serving that day. What an awesome example. Here she was grieving over the loss of her own husband, but she said, I'm going to go out and be a part of this one project, Project Nehemiah, and she begins to hear this woman share the loss of her husband. The two instantly connect. The group moves on. The lady from our church stays and ministers to this woman. It was a beautiful thing. It was something only God put, could put together. The hand of God was upon us. And that's what we need every aspect of our lives. God, I can't break through these walls and my family and the workplace and this community and and when you really stop and think of what's going on in the heart of this 20-year-old that he loses his temper so bad to kill a two-year-old over a video game, how do you break through that? We need the hand of God. How do you even have the opportunity to, to talk to that 20-year-old? We, we need the hand of God. More than ever, as a church family and as individuals, we need the good hand of God, the gracious hand of God to be upon us. Amen? So we look at verse 9. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. Far out. Not only does he get to go, not only is the building project paid for, but he gets armed guards to go with him. He must have, Nehemiah must have been pretty special to the king. When Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the official, heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. There'll always be opposition to the work of God. But greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do at Jerusalem 
nor was there any animal with me except the one which I rode. Point number five is patience. Nehemiah has been going through this back at Sushan for several months. Now he's in Jerusalem. He's been there for three days. There's already Israelites living in Jerusalem, and he tells no one what's on his heart. Why? Because he realizes that many people have the spiritual gift of holy discouragement. You're all pumped up. You're stoked out of your mind about what God's doing, all these open doors, his provision. You're ready to rally some people to God's cause, to God's commission, and they look at you like deer in headlights going, no way. Why don't you just go back and serve some more coffee? You don't know anything about this. Do you know Sanballat and Tobiah? These guys are angry. I don't think that we should rock the boat at all. Nehemiah sensed this. He knew this. He knew there was a time to share and a time not to share. So what does he do during this time? Verse 13, And I went out by night through the valley gate of the serpent well and the refuge gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates were burned with fire. Then I went onto the fountain gate into the king's pool but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. Lord willing, in February of next year, we're gonna take a trip to, to Israel. And I wish that we could teleport everybody to Israel to go because you can walk around these ancient walls. They, they have a section of Nehemiah's wall that he rebuilt. And once you've seen it, you can really visually picture it. I wonder what was going through Nehemiah's mind as he was walking upon these ruins. I think he was probably thinking of what had happened there prior. David was the one through his leadership that allowed Israel to gain occupation of the city of Jerusalem. Solomon built up the city to tremendous glory. We read through Samuel and kings and all of these kings and Uzziah and now they're in captivity and they come back and what was so important, which was such a place of protection, was now in complete ruins. We need to get personal with the devastation. We need to get our hands on it. It wasn't enough for Nehemiah to get to Jerusalem and just sit in the hotel and start this initiative. He goes out and he gets his hands on the devastation. He personally touches those areas that had been destroyed. In verse 16, and the officials didn't know where I'd gone or what I'd done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, other, others who did the work. Then I said to them, so now's the point where he's going to share with the Israelites who are there. You see the distress that we're in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer build a reproach. I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. Church, this is point number six, participation. Participation. I am extremely discouraged by the spiritual climate of our culture and our country. But also, I'm very hopeful and very inspired that God wants to do a work. Has God changed? Is he overwhelmed? 
Is he on his throne going, oh man, I cannot believe the United States of America. I have never seen a country so grossly in debt before. They would need to be immortal just to pay that off. They would have to be eternal just to pay off their, their debt. Oh man, can, can you believe the state of their culture and what's taking place? What do you think the heart of the father is? Man, they've made a real mess of things, but hopefully they turn to me. Hopefully people will be saved. Hopefully people will see how much that I love them. And we have a choice. Church, we have a choice. Is we can live in depression and grumbling and complaining, or we can rise up and build. What do you want to do? I say we rise up and build. I say we go for it. Distress gives an opportunity for the gospel to come in and work. Pain gives an opportunity for people to turn to Jesus Christ. Where do we start? In our own lives, in our own families, in our own community, in our own neighborhoods, in our own workplaces. And we begin to declare and live out the love of Jesus Christ. God is in that place where he's wanting to do a work of rebuilding. Notice the response. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. The people respond. If you're familiar with the book of Nehemiah, they're able to build the wall in 52 days. It's a supernatural work of God. Wednesday night, we're gonna take the Wednesday night service and look at Nehemiah 3 and 4. Then Sunday out in the park, we're, we're gonna look also in the book of Nehemiah at the celebration, the burden, the work, the celebration. It always goes that way. The burden then results in the work. We've gotta put our hands to the work. God is faithful. And then in time, we're able to see God's work completed and there's celebration. We end the chapter, verse 19 and 20. But when Sanballat the Hornite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we are his servants. We will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Let's respond to the distress and reproach with prayer and steps of faith. Prayer and steps of faith. An application of this message, which is going to be a little bit different this morning, is I want to give a way that we can respond as a whole church family, all of us, in unity, as, as one body. Also individually, but primarily as one body. Here's some practical things. Come Wednesday night. Mark it on your calendars, put it into your phone, make a mental note. I'm going to be here Wednesday night. Because what we're going to do on Wednesday night is we're going to look at chapter 3 and 4, then we're going to break up into groups and we're going to pray. We're going to ask that God would work, not only this weekend, but going forward long-term in our community. We believe Wednesday night's going to be a special night in, in our church. And then sign up and be a part of the outreach on Saturday. I know some of you are like, man, you know, I, I know what he said, but I don't know if I can make it work, and these are all the things that I've got going. I understand, but in any way possible, if you can come be a part of it, even for an hour, do. If you can be here from eight to nine, man, be here. If you can be here from 12 to two, show up. We'll, we'll do our best to employ you and get you out there and see what, what God's gonna do, because it's really fun to reach out in your neighborhood and at your workplace, but how many times can you come together as a whole church family and say, let's go out and serve with one another. 
I've made great relationships with people inside the body through this project over the years. You're going get to get to know people. And then, would you come on Sunday to America, the beautiful park? That ticket that you got as you came in, that flyer that you got as you, you came in, if you, you still got this, because I know a few things that are probably coming through your mind as you're thinking about America, the beautiful park next Sunday. As you're like, there is no stinking air conditioning down there. And I'm going to have to bring my own chair. And I'm going to have to drive an extra six miles to downtown. I don't really like downtown. I haven't been to downtown since 1982. I don't, I don't really want to go down there. This is my chance to go visit another church or take, take the weekend off and, and go fishing. Do you ever get frustrated by some of the stuff that happens in downtown Colorado Springs? Well, this is our chance to go to downtown Colorado Springs and worship Jesus together. Woo! Let's do it. Let's go for it, right? A lot of times we want to grumble and complain, but we don't want to do anything, not even drive seven miles downtown. Like, nuh-uh. Man, that pastor got way too crazy, you know? Just give me my verse-by-verse study and send me home, but don't ask me to go downtown. I'm asking you to come downtown, you know? Come on down. Enjoy it. Bring your chair. Put on some sunscreen. Get sunburned. Ah, you know? Watch some people get baptized. Get baptized. Bring a picnic and enjoy some, some fellowship. But even more so is maybe take four or five of these or some at the information center and take that step of faith to invite somebody. Say, would you come with me? Would you come with my family? We'd love to have you. Bring a chair. We'll, we'll pack you a lunch. And let's see what, what God would do in the hearts and the lives of people. So that's a way that we can respond together. Also, if you say, you know what, pastor, my life is in a place where the walls are broken down. I'm the child of God, but I've really made a mess of things. Does God love me? Could he restore me? Absolutely. In just a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to raise your hand. You're not raising your hand to be saved, to receive the gospel. You've already done that. But you're confessing to the Lord, God, I've been living in rebellion before you. I've taken your word and I've thrown it out of my life. And I've experienced the painful consequences of it. And I want to confess that before you. God, the pain is very real. But I acknowledge your love. I'm returning to you. And I'm asking that you would do a redemptive work in my life. So let's pray together. Father, we come before you, we humble ourselves before you, where we realize that there's so many things in our lives that are broken, the walls have been broken down. And Lord, we would ask that you would do a restorative work this morning in our midst. God, would you touch hearts? If that's you and you're saying, you know, I need to get right with the Lord, I need to come back to him, I need him to rebuild my life, would you raise your hand and just let me pray with you? Just raise it up, leave it up, and Respond. Why is it so important to respond? Because it's a step of faith. We see throughout the scriptures, God responds as we draw near to him. And by raising your hand, you're drawing near to the Lord. So let me pray for you. Father, you see the hands that are raised. You see the hearts, the lives. God, you know them. And as they're saying, the walls of my life have been broken down. There's no security. There's no stability. Lord, you love them. And as they confess to you, We know that you'll be gracious to forgive them and begin that work of restoring them. So we pray, Lord, that you would run to them, that they would feel your love, 
that you'd wrap your loving arms around them, that you would clothe them with your grace and your forgiveness, that you'd bless them. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.